0: frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown american drink go to grown Superfood.com forward slash john and order today
1: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road
0: From the lonely, haunted, desolate emptiness of Sirius XM Studios at nighttime in New York City. In all its completely unoccupied splendor, this has Tell me everything. The late night show that shows up, even if it's just me and Thea and one emotionally indifferent janitor. Welcome to Channel 127. For the next three hours, we'll be coming at you at 866-997-4748. Making sense of the day we've just survived. Thea and I have traveled in the cold winter night to this vacant, hollow... Corporate edifice, devoid of life, desolate, no human activity, because we share a commitment to live radio and post-COVID contractual obligations. It is unoccupied like a city in a zombie film, and we are thrilled to be here with you. And we picked a good one for tonight. Normally, we're in here uh, one night a week lately in the Howard Stern Tower. But it's fun to come here when there's no one else and we can run around and jump on all the desks. But tonight we have a jam-packed show. I'm very pleased to tell you that we're going to be talking with Mirella sehar the co-director of Minnesota's Freedom Fund, about a topic that's beginning to get a lot of play in the news, the fight to end cash bail. And who's for it, who's against it, and um, whether bail actually keeps anyone safe or if it's just a racket on the local level. We'll also be talking with uh, Dr. Nolan Higdon, who's returning to the show, to discuss his new book, The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. Now, I was very excited to get uh, Dr. Higdon back on the show. He's been on before to talk about the Project Censored's uh, annual yearbook. But we're talking about passive media consumption and how that's bad for humans of all ages if y'all are listening to series xm progress it's a safe bet you've already got a little bit of a head start on critical thinking when you consume media but uh, imagine you know if your kids spent 11 hours a day trying to fly an airplane and we never taught them anything about airplane safety or how planes work or how to fly them that would be dangerous right well kids spend hours and hours in the media and Dr Higdon has written a really fascinating book well with some co-authors about how you can introduce younger readers and grown-ups to critical media literacy techniques, how to have some hands-on exercises to apply what they've learned, how to spot the fake news when you see it. So it's just me and Thea. The place is empty. I've already been through Howard Stern's dressing room and all that stuff. The doors don't lock at night. Did you know that? I mean, Michelangelo Signorelli doesn't lock his desk either. I had no idea. He went through his desk? He doesn't lock it. It's right up there. Dean, Dean Obadala has a whole locker. He doesn't even lock it. You just Go right in. Um, I don't think you should be sharing that. Oh, please. But... No one actually watches the security cameras. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. In the meantime, <laughs> we have a lot to get to and, uh, and a lot of great guests coming up. Eugene Levy will be joining us very shortly on the show as well, I think next week, and lots of other stuff I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about yet. Let's get to it. Let's talk about infighting in the Republican Party. Now, Republicans outspent Democrats, as you probably know, $4.2 billion to Democrats $4 billion in the uh, midterms in 2022. But even though they spent more, they did not win back a Senate majority. And let's just say they underperformed in the race to take the House. They were saying they'd get 90 seats. What if they got like two and a half, something like that? So let's talk about the infighting, because the big fight in the modern Republican Party right now I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, it's not really Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis. The media will tell us that's the big fight. And it's fun to watch these two mediocrities go at each other. Or Donald Trump pummeling Ron DeSantis with his stupid nicknames. And DeSantis hating Trump and trying to stay above the fray. What does meatball mean? Is that just, is that just, he's just being ethnically disparaging of of an Italian? Try that in Florida, but again, the big fight is not Trump versus DeSantis. Get your mind off of that. That's what the media wants us to think. And it's not Trump versus Mitch McConnell. And it's not Mitch McConnell versus Rick Scott, although that's deeply fun to watch, because, you know, they want to get rid of Social Security, and Mitch doesn't like that they said it out loud, but no. The big Republican Party battle doesn't get nearly enough credit, is the soulless donors versus the mindless Trump supporters. That's the battle. The soulless big money donors versus the mindless Trump mob. That's the battle. Now, the donors do not want to see Trump. They went along with it. They didn't want him. And never forget, Donald Trump ran for president against a lot more better funded candidates. Remember Jeb? Remember Scott Walker? Remember Marco Rubio? Trump was able to deliver in terms of charisma, in terms of his media performance, in terms of the you know pro wrestling act. He turned a once great political party into. The donors don't want that back. The people who own this party, the people who own this country, and who buy Republicans in exchange for Republicans cutting their taxes and letting them pollute more easily, they want a Trump alternative. And they think they've got it in the doughy, overrated, race-baiting mediocrity that is Florida's Ron DeSantis. But as you guys know, Donald Trump has a very powerful hold on much of the right-wing base that he hooked into in 2016. He's, he's still the titular head of the party. He still leads all the polls, most of the polls. So right-wing money bag groups, Americans for Prosperity and the Club for Growth, they're planning to pour millions into someone's presidential campaign to stop Trump from winning the nomination. So keep that in mind. You're going to have Donald Trump running ostensibly on his own money, <laughs> which is to say on Vladimir Putin's money, uh, and again, he takes it in. He launders it all. When Trump's dead, they'll write all the books about how all these foreign governments paid our president through his shitty hotels, and he'll, you know, he'll get small donor suckers, and then you'll have the big money bag groups like the Anti Tax Club for Growth. Now they love a lot of these wannabe Trumps, and they're not gonna probably get behind one right away. But the Club for Growth has now invited six possible GOP candidates to come to their donor summit in Florida next month. Listen to who this is. Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I know, it's like the traveling Wilburys if they were all evil mediocrities. Donald Trump's not invited to their donor summit. Club for Growth is done with him. And then there's Americans for Prosperity. That's the conservative political action network founded by the evil billionaire Koch brothers. And they said they, they don't know who they're going to go for. They'll back someone by the end of summer, meaning they want to back DeSantis, but they're playing it safe. But which candidate would it really be? Because as you guys know, we need a new kind of Republican. You always hear this after any GOP disaster, don't you? It's time for a new kind of Republican. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was talking that way last week in her rebuttal to the president's State of the Union address. And new kind of Republican time which you always hear, right? Marco Rubio, Paul Ryan, Scott Walker. Anytime they talk about someone's being a new kind of Republican, they're repackaging something stale and trying to sell it back to you. Kevin McCarthy was a new kind of Republican. So Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, Former Donald Trump, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., announced her presidential campaign this morning. She became the first officially declared challenger to former President Trump in the Republican primary. She's also the first officially declared candidate to really be running to be vice president to either Trump or DeSantis. Let's not pussyfoot around here. You know, there's this whole like, like presidential campaign loser industrial complex. And we've seen it in both parties. People who have no intention of ever actually getting the White House go ahead and run because they know it'll lead to another gig. The lobbying gig or public speaking. Who knows what their reason is? Nikki Haley knows she'll never be president. She's running to be vice president to either Donald Trump or DeSantis. If you keep this in the back of your mind, this is my tip at media literacy. You'll you'll be a lot more sane in the days and weeks to come. Now, she's going to get, in fairness, the first crack at building early support because she's from a key state and so she can raise from people down there. She'll probably be the only woman in the Republican field. She gave her statement today. um, We're not going to play it. But she said in her video, I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants, not black, not white. I was different. So she's going for the Trump fans who love immigrants demographic, which is kind of like going for the people who love ultimate fighting championship and Lindsey Graham. She said some look at our past as evidence that America's founding principles are bad. (laughs) No, some look at our past as evidence that slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and apartheid are bad. And some Republicans don't want to talk about it. But this is the whole thing, right? She's a new kind of Republican. Not Trump. Not Trump. You know, we can look at the entire GOP field and it's divided into two categories. One is the candidates who are Trump. And over here, the candidates who are not Trump. And the funny part is uh, both sides weigh the same. But they figure if Haley can win the not Trump voters, then she could go up against Donald Trump. Now, that's never going to happen. Let's go back through the mists of time and revisit Nikki Haley way back to an ancient land called 2016 when she endorsed Senator Marco Rubio for president. And in this rally, the cue this went up. She was telling the Republican faithful who their enemy is and who they should not trust.
1: Everything I taught my children not to do in kindergarten. I taught my two little ones. You don't lie and make things up. A man
2: who has filed for bankruptcy four
1: times. A man that chooses not to disavow the KKK. That is not a part of our party. That's not who we want as president. We will not allow that in our country. I am an accountant. I can tell you there
2: is no audit that precludes you mm-hmm. from showing your tax returns.
0: Donald Trump, show us your tax returns. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's, that's, that's the clip you're going to hear of Nikki Haley telling the truth. And it's from six years ago, seven years ago now. And that's all the truth you're going to hear from Nikki Haley tonight. Because she said those things about Trump. She meant those things about Trump because they were easy for her to say. They were true. And when Trump offered her the chance to be his U.N. ambassador, she took the knee and said, praise be his name. The rest is history or the rest is her story. Stuart Stevens, former Republican consultant, he made a hell of an op ed today in The New York Times where he said, I don't think she's really running because she thinks she's going to be president of the U.S. First of all, she doesn't have anything else to do. She's raised some money here in her pack and she'll run. And I would say she's running to be vice president. I don't think she's going to go out there and attack Donald Trump. He's right. She will not be attacking Donald Trump as she runs against him because she's hoping, this man she hates, and who hates her, that he might give her a second job. Uh, Mr. Stevens continued in his New York Times op-ed: no one else really embodies the sort of collapse of the party as well as Nikki Haley. She was what the party was supposed to be. She went out and said Donald Trump was everything that she taught her children not to be. And she went from saying that to saying she wants to carry on the Trump legacy. It's just so sad. She's already broken before she gets in the race. And again, you know, she might, she, she might reason, but being from a state with an early primary and maybe getting an early win there, that could give her campaign something to lean on. That's not going to happen. She's not going to do that well in her own home state, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now let's go back to 2015. When a young right wing white male named Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, opened fire on the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina in June of 2015. Dylan Roof, of course, had posed with the Confederate flag in many photos before the long plan attack, and he used an AR 15 to slaughter nine African American parishioners who warmly welcomed him into their church. Because that's what actual Christ followers do. But we're not talking about Christ followers. We're talking about Republicans. And I defy anyone to call here and challenge me on this. The Republicans are Christ rejectors. They use Jesus' name. They wave him around like a prop. And then as soon as they have power, they legislate against everything he taught. Again, right-wing Christians listening, I invite you to call. Tell me how I'm wrong on this. So after... Dylan Roof murdered these people with an AR-15. Nikki Haley decided to do the responsible thing for her political career and called for a ban on AR-15s. Oh no, I'm sorry. No, she didn't do that. She called to remove the Confederate flag from the state house. And it got everyone off the discussion of AR-15s. Suddenly we're all talking about the treason flag. This happens all the time. Remember with the 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 largest uh, mass killing of white people In our country's history, in Las Vegas in 2017, the guy used bump stocks and AR-15 from the hotel window and slaughtered folks at a country music concert. Well, right away, Donald Trump got everyone talking about bump stocks, so no one talked about the AR-15. They always find a way to not make it about men who get murder weapons really easily. So Nikki Haley... Patted herself on the back and people praised her. You, you took down the Confederate flag. It only took you 150 years, but hey, that's better than nothing. They, the Confederates quit America because they wanted to keep humans as fucking livestock and they took up arms against America and slaughtered American troops. And you have flown the flag of white supremacist traitors on your capital for dozens of years, but okay, you took it down. Good for you. And of course, this being Nikki Haley, she meant none of it. Here she is a year later after taking her bows for taking down the Confederate flag. She went on a show hosted by someone called Glenn Beck uh, and she was talking about how the Confederate flag actually symbolized service, sacrifice and heritage. Get a load of this bullshit right here.
2: South Carolina fell to her knees when this happened. This is one of the oldest African American churches. These 12 people were amazing people. They loved their church. They loved their family. They loved their community. And here is this guy that comes out with his manifesto, holding the Confederate flag, and had just hijacked, hijacked. everything that people thought of. And we don't have hateful people in South Carolina. There's he always the small minority it. that's always going to be there, but you know, people saw it as service and sacrifice and wow. heritage. Wow. And wow. but once he did that, there would there was no way to overcome it. And the national media came in. In droves, they wanted to define what happened. They wanted to make this about racism. They wanted to make it about gun control. So they you get the idea, right? That penalty. poor, victimized and Confederate
0: really flag. Uh, he hide a, a white supremacist hijacked our literal symbol of white supremacy. Ask yourself: Is there a more prominent symbol of white supremacy anywhere in American history than that flag? Our friend Michael Steele, former head of the RNC at the time, he tweeted: "Really, Nikki? The Confederate flag represented service, sacrifice, and heritage." To whom? The black people who were terrorized and lynched in its name? You said it should never have been there. Roof didn't hijack the meaning of that flag. He inherited it. Damn, Michael Steele. By the way, today, uh, they found some footage showing Nikki Haley back in 2010 telling a pro-Confederate group that states should have the right to secede from the U.S. So you get the idea, right? But it gets better. Remember after January 6th, in early 2021? I know, we're going way back two years in media literacy. But she said after January 6th in an interview with Politico, I don't think Trump's going to be in the picture. I don't think he can. He's fallen so far. We need to acknowledge he let us down. He went down a path he shouldn't have, and we shouldn't have followed him, and we shouldn't have listened to him, and we can't let that ever happen again. So there you go. She closed the book on Trump. She thought she had it all figured out, told the truth about him. Then she was thirsty, sacrificed all of her alleged fake morals, took the job, then left, and then finally cut him loose after he sponsored a terrorist attack on our capital. Mm, but then last year, she said, Trump's not so bad. We need him. In 2021, Nikki Haley said, I won't run if Trump runs. Today, she announced she's running. I have run out of flip-flops on this woman. There is no alternative to Trump. It's all Trump. There is no other kind of Republican, guys. There is no other kind of Republican who'll be running for president this year. Trump, of course, uh, well, here's an ironic bookend. Trump told the truth about her. He put out a statement saying she started out as an ever trumper before resigning to serve in the Trump administration. She then resigned early to go raking money on corporate boards. Sure Jess looks like more the same. A career politician whose only fulfilled commitment is to herself. Damn it, Nikki. You made me agree with Donald Trump on something. So let's go elsewhere in the state because it looks like not one, but maybe two South Carolinians are going to actually run against the frontrunners, Trump and DeSantis. We're assuming DeSantis runs. And that's Tim Scott. The only African-American Republican in the Senate. Now, they loved him, Scott. They had him do the official response to Joe Biden's first speech to a joint session of Congress two years ago, where the only black Republican said, America is not a racist country. He loves to say that. And then he'll give interviews where he talks about how many times he's been pulled over by cops for no reason. But in front of the right audience, he'll say America's not a racist country. And he attacks any kind of race conscious remedy for bigotry and discrimination. And white Republicans love him. Because white Republicans love to hear a black man announce their innocence. White Republicans like nothing more than a black man to come on stage and say, there is no more racism. There's no racism in this party. The real problem are those people complaining about racism. They're the racists. To them, that's authentic. Tim Scott has run away from his own police reform, like Marco Rubio ran away from his own immigration reform. This is the kind of stuff Tim Scott does. Really quick, here he is on TV talking about the real problem, uh, not white supremacy, woke supremacy.
3: Hey, let me just say this on what you just said. Woke supremacy is as bad as white supremacy. We need to take that seriously. And to all those folks who oppose uh, good common sense, Matthew 5, is still available to be read. More fake
0: Christianity. Let's look at how many um, black men were hung from trees by woke people, and then we'll try to get some adequate numbers on how many were hung by white supremacist people. So you understand Tim Scott's game, and it's arguably more disgusting than Nikki Haley's. And and again, Tim Scott stood for a couple things, you know, um, helping poor and minority Americans. But (laughs) what he really means is enterprise zones. You know, private capital investment in low income areas, which was a radical idea when fucking Jack Kemp talked about it 30 years ago. And um, and then, of course, school choice, which just means public money goes to private, usually religious schools at the expense of government schools and poor kids fall through the cracks. So, you know, exactly what you're getting there. And here's the thing. This is two South Carolinians and they're going to have an early primary and they're both going to run. But Donald Trump has already been endorsed By the governor of South Carolina, the lieutenant governor of South Carolina, the senior U.S. senator of South Carolina, that would be Lindsey Graham and three House members. Imagine you're Tim Scott running and your fellow senator, Lindsey Graham, can't endorse you or Nikki Haley and the governor who succeeded you can't endorse you because they've already promised Donald Trump. And you're going to sit there and debate and smile and fly coach from debate to debate waiting for someone to offer you the rose to be VP. They're not polling well. No one's going to take them seriously. And, and honestly, they're both running for vice president. But watch them. They're going to have to find a way to not answer that question because you'll be seeing journalists asking them, will you rule out being vice president to be taken seriously as a presidential candidate? Neither one will answer. Meanwhile, Mike Pence. We found out today his lawyers apparently intend to challenge Jack Smith's subpoena. With the a, really a, a nifty idea, they're going to claim that the speech and debate clause of the Constitution protects him from disclosing conversations he had with Trump about the crimes of January 6th. What is the speech and debate clause? Well, it applies only to senators and Congress members. And it says the senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services, be ascertained by law, be paid out of the Treasury. They shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance. You're probably saying by now, wait a second, Mike Pence isn't in Congress. He's not. But the legal argument he's making is that because as vice president, he was president of the Senate for tie breaks, that means he's exempt. In other words, Mike Pence is arguing he was performing a duty as a president of the Senate so he doesn't have to tell law enforcement the truth about Donald Trump. This is how hard Mike Pence is fighting to not have to tell cops the truth about Trump. All of them, guys. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, throw in Christy Gnome, throw in Mike Pompeo. They're all grifters. They're all trying to run off of Trump's hype. They've all in the past at different times thrown their support behind Paul Ryan's proposal to cut and privatize Medicare. And they're all horrified of Trump, blindly obedient to Trump and pretending to challenge him. In other words, there is no new kind of Republican. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
2: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that.
0: Let's talk about cash bail and a system of cash bail that is not about justice. It's not about public safety. The cash bail system as we know it is about power and it's about making a profit. And it's about how it wrongfully discriminates against black, brown and indigenous communities. Now, the Minnesota Freedom Fund gained a lot of attention around the world after the murder of George Floyd, Kamala Harris talked about them. There was a tweet from Justin Timberlake asking for donations. A windfall of money followed. And the Minnesota Freedom Fund pays bail and immigration bonds for Americans who've been arrested who can't afford it. Because as we know, we don't have equal justice under the law when poor people have to spend time in jail and people with money can go home and await their trial. They're trying to change the entire narrative. pre-trial fairness. Now, uh, last year, a Las Vegas shooting victim sued the Bail Project, which is a national nonprofit bail fund that provided bail in an unrelated case for the man later charged with that horrible shooting. The Bail Project's Las Vegas chapter had to shut down after the suit was filed, and conservative media loved this because, hey, more poor black, brown, and indigenous people wasting away in jails. So in Minnesota and nationwide, A lot of right-wing pundits are saying a similar lawsuit should be filed against the Minnesota Freedom Fund. This is a high-profile community bail fund, and it pays small amount cash bails and immigration bonds for people who can't afford it. Their mission is to end discriminatory, coercive, and oppressive Jailing, And Mirella Sejo Orozco is the co-executive director of Minnesota Freedom Fund. Prior to joining the fund, she served as a fierce and dedicated advocate of immigrants' rights. She's dedicated her legal career to helping people navigate the complicated world of immigration law after experiencing its complexities and witnessing its devastating impact on her own family. It is a great pleasure to welcome Mirella Sejo Orozco to SiriusXM. Good evening.
4: Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here.
0: Thank you. I so appreciate having you. And thanks for all you do. Um, I hope I set things up very well. Minnesota Freedom Fund gained a lot of attention and a lot of donations, obviously, during the protests after George Floyd's murder. Before we even dive into your mission, I'd love to ask, um, first, how you came to be this kind of advocate? How did a life of activism for the least of us fall into your lap?
4: yeah well, as you mentioned and thank you so much for the wonderful introduction um, I am the the daughter of immigrants and you know my father was deported and so I went through the legal system witnessing it going through my own family coming from a mixed status household um, and family where you know my light skinness served me in a way that it didn't serve other family members of mine um, but where it also allowed me to use that privilege, to help those and open the door for others um, to ensure that we all got the most out of this country that we could, as we deserve as Americans. Um, but And so thankfully, you know, I lived the experience through my father and became an advocate um, and moved to Minnesota because I'm originally from the Bay Area, from mm-hmm. California. I moved <laughs> so to Minnesota, realized You wanted the weather, these- right? You <laughs>
0: wanted the weather. That's what, that's what drew you <laughs> I in. I
4: had never seen real snow before. <laughs> So um, and i it's embarrassing to say, but I moved to Minnesota, assuming it was cold all year round <laughs> and showed up in August uh, for law school uh, with a puff coat on and snow boots on ready for the tundra. And Google existed, weather.com existed, but I didn't bother to check those because I watched the Mighty Ducks movies and I knew <laughs> I knew it was cold all year round. <laughs>
0: Now, you were working at the time as a, as a uh, pro bono attorney, um, and you were, I, I'm sure your whole life back then was trying to get bond paid for detained clients.
4: That's right. I had been a, a, an immigration detention based practitioner, meaning that I was working with people that were fighting uh, deportations or removal from the United States and had been a volunteer of Minnesota Freedom Fund. Um, as a board member, but also as someone that would go and pay bonds for people um, as was needed with the organization at the time of George Floyd's murder. Um, and so I'd been involved with the organization for some time at that, at that point. And obviously, the organization is a very different organization than it was at that time. So um, I think at the time of George Floyd's uh, murder, we were a staff of one and a working board of volunteers of eight. Um, And so now we are a staff of 27. And just able to help on a completely different scale across the state for criminal based cases and across the country for immigration based cases.
0: I mean, it's amazing to think that you went from immigration law to bail reform. I guess that was more relaxing for you. Um, but, you know, I-
4: it was it, it, if I can say that it, it, it's, been, you know, I don't know if relaxing is the word because apparently I just love I love it all. But it's just it's, it's different, you know, but it's still the same work. And that's what people often don't realize is how interconnected immigration detention and immigration laws are to criminal-based detention and criminal laws. Well, um, let's talk is- about
0: it because, I mean, it, it really, really is. And it seems like you can't really do one without the other if you're going to be practicing law, this kind of law in America.
4: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's why there's a whole new area of law called crimigration which is that intermixing because so many of the soda, we don't even have immigration based detention county jails with general population in, uh, detainees or inmates um, and the, the the rhetoric used is criminalizing you know you can hear it yes. anytime you hear politicians talking about the southern border um, it's very, very very criminalized language um, they use the word of illegals you know aliens it's very the language that is similar to the way it's uh, people are describing people who are facing pre-trial detention who have a constitutional right um, and are not guilty until uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, not guilty until um, until proven. So and but are criminalized anyway.
0: Exactly. I mean, I could talk all day about the word illegals because these people have never used that word on a white lawbreaker. They've never used the word thug uh, to describe a white lawbreaker, too, in most cases. And uh, mm-hmm. I prefer to call mm-hmm. the people that are southern border Christian refugees. But that's a whole other conversation just to upset the right people. Um So tell me about what your role is in Minnesota Freedom Fund and what is your average workday like?
4: Sure. So, I mean, now I'm what we call a co-executive director. So uh, me, alongside my co-executive director, Eliza Darius, um, we both came into the workspace as co-leaders, systems of harm and oppression in the state of Minnesota. Um, and so now as a as an attorney, but also as a co-executive director, it's running an organization. Um, we've just started a new arm to our organization, which is a 501c4 mm-hmm. nonprofit that allows for lobbying um, and having direct impact on legislature um, and policies that are coming before that legislature. So an average workday varies based on, you know, what bails and bonds we are paying on a particular day, um, as well as then going to the Capitol, So I I think the average day kind of varies, um, but, uh, you know, especially during the midterm elections, I mean, we're highly focused on being able to address um, backlash that our organization as well as others were facing because of the harmful rhetoric being used and the criminalization of, of cash bail and what that means for people in the community. And now we're able to kind of use the momentum that we've gained and what other organizations around the country have gained in in seeing that there is still that push and now we have to push to implement those laws we're seeing that in new york we're seeing that in illinois um and so we are very supportive of the organizations across the country that are doing that and are are pushing to do that ourselves now as well
0: and i find the fact that you guys are able to make a 501c3 is such an indication of all the goodwill That came from so many Americans and so many people around the globe after the disastrous, horrible murder of George Floyd. I know that your budget as a nonprofit was about two hundred thirty thousand dollars a year before then. And then after 2020, it went up to is it forty two million?
4: That is correct. So, yeah, we were working with the budget and because we're called with a revolving fund. Mm-hmm. Meaning we have money circulating in and out because we're paying bills. And as those cases are closed, that money is then returning to the organization. So it's more cyclical. So we averaged about 150 to 200000 a year uh, under that system. And then, yes, we had over 1 million individual donors uh, following the murder of George Floyd and the uprising that ensued um, and, and got so many resources from so many from people in the community and across the country to really be able to have a much greater impact um, and help as many more people than we thought we could. So
0: so let's talk about the, the the real issue here. You are very adept at explaining to clueless white people like me why cash bail as we know it is a great problem and i know so much of your life is having to give this spiel over and over again but the fact that your organization got so much money that now you can be a super PAC is to me a sign that we're actually moving in the right direction a bit and i'm so enthused about it but can you explain for our listeners why bail is something we learn about on law and order but doesn't really do much in terms of justice
4: Sure. And and I don't get tired of talking about it. So I appreciate you need to understand what cash bail is, Please. is that it was intended to be a way of guaranteeing someone's return to court. When it first started, it was a guarantee that if you didn't return to court, you would have to pay. Right. That changed over time. And the problem is, is that by doing so, this system criminalizes individuals who are facing poverty. Um, and we know that if you have the resources to get out of jail, uh, I'm going to call in That's what
0: I was told to do. <laughs> You're going to call us up now. Now suddenly it's
4: I got, I got it.
0: Okay. Um well then what we'll do is uh go ahead and if you want to call us you have the number we're going to take uh we're not going to take a break I'm going to let you go ahead and we'll log off the Zoom you can call us up on the hotline cuz I really want to get to the rest of your of your uh of your conversation. So give us a call. We'll have you back on in about a minute. In the meantime, this is Sirius XM. We are at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. While we actually have a quick little break in the action, I just want to say that uh, we're going to be taking your calls later on tonight about the uh, Emmett Till Warrant this is something that is uh, unexpected and I didn't think would be coming out in my lifetime. But a relative of Emmett Till is now suing to try to make um, a Mississippi sheriff serve a 1955 West warrant on a white woman for the kidnapping that led to the murder and the brutal lynching of Emmett Till. Do we have Maria back on hold? Hello, are you there? Yes. Oh, thank you. Yes. so. Oh, I can hear you now. Good. Let's get back, you're, let's get back to f- saving justice. Thank you. So
4: you were- <laughs> so sorry no. for my internet. I think it's the Minnesota storm that I'm facing right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you can blame anything on the Minnesota winters. It's fine with me. I love it there. But you were speaking uh, very powerfully about how bail is a, a system that is not a problem for the rich, which makes it seem like it's just a tax on the poor. But please go ahead.
4: Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much again, and thank you to your listeners for your patience with me. No oh, sure. Um, but one of the things that we've seen is that the cash bail system today is used at least as much of a tool of punishment as it is to guarantee someone's appearance. In other words, instead of a, uh, making sure that someone has an equal access to pretrial freedom, um, judges will often set a bail amount to people, especially poor people, who cannot afford to pay these bills, um, thereby circumventing their rights and keeping them incarcerated. And it's, it's no surprise that under these conditions, people without money, you know, people without access to money or resources from others, they are stripped of that presumption of innocence and then jailed pre-trial at wildly disproportionate rates from others. Um, and we know that with a systemic racist system and a racial wealth gap, more likely than not, those that are detained pretrial for longer periods of time end up being black, brown, and indigenous people.
0: That's it. I mean, bail is an extra punishment for just poor people. I was reading an interview. Oh, go ahead, please.
4: No, and I was just going to mention it. It it also carries, I mean, just the the detrimental harm uh, is that because these people are often detained pretrial, they are more likely and more vulnerable to unfavorable plea deals because they are detained there and then prosecutors use that to their advantage in promising milder sentences in exchange for those plea deals because they know that those people are already there um, and and, and may likely be kept there because they haven't been able to afford getting out.
0: And again, this is not about keeping guilty people out of jail. These people will all still face trial. It's just making sure that the underprivileged don't have to sit around in jail waiting for their day in court, whereas those who have the disposable income can just skate away.
4: Yep, that's correct. And I mean, it is within our constitution and I hate to remind folks, but I mean, we have said we are innocent until proven guilty and the way the cash bail system works, it that's not necessarily the case because you can be detained pre-trial for months, even years, and you've still not been found guilty of anything, but now you've been detained for months, you've lost your home, you've lost your job, you lost your children, you have lost the ability to support that family. And so now the ripple effect of that harm, the consequences, go directly in opposition to that public safety and health concerns that the political rhetoric often mm-hmm. references.
0: Um, I was reading an interview where you uh, provided a local TV station some some stats, and it showed that 61.4% of the people that were bailed out by MFF were black 82.8% were men, and the majority, over 65%, were in the Hennepin County Jail. These are all people that would have just sat in a cage for God knows how long if your organization hadn't intervened. I'm curious, what about once they're bailed out? Do you have any support systems or post-release programs for, uh, for the people that you've helped
4: Yes, we do, and we're one of the few bill funds that actually does provide post-release support, and it's actually called just that, is post-release support, because what, what we've seen is that oftentimes the folks that we, we are helping have additional needs. They may need connecting to a shelter if they are unhoused. If they um, have any kind of mental health needs or physical health needs, they may need those access points to those resources so that they can get to that healthcare check so that they can do those other things that will help them be successful in fin- finalizing the terms of their, whether conditions that they may have or, you know, being able to continue their life and, and being able to find the resources to then support them in, in their case. We've also been doing things as simple as getting them uh, a list to take them to and from court Mm. you know because oftentimes people don't have cars and especially in the 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 weathers that we are facing here in Minnesota those things have a detrimental impact if you don't show up to that one hearing I mean now you have a warrant against you now you have all these additional factors used against you Um, we've been able to provide things like zoom access for our clients and ensuring that they're able to get those resources Um, a new thing that we are starting to really see is the need to support people who may be facing some form of um, need for narcan or other um, access to resources if they do have some sort of issues with drugs or or concerns that they may need because now they are exposed they don't have the resources you know we provide coats even particularly for our clients detained in ice detention oftentimes they've been there for months they were detained two seasons ago when it was hot here Um, we had one person just released last week who was in shorts And released out from the jail. And so thankfully, our staff person knew that they were being released within a time frame, but they had already been sitting out there for 30 minutes to an hour with no coat and, you know, in negative five degree weather.
0: We have to Um, hit a break. I'm so, so sorry, but I would love to invite you back. I'm sorry that we had the technical glitches, but I'd love to have you back to go even deeper on this. In the meantime, how can our listeners learn more about your work with the Minnesota Freedom Fund?
4: Please, you know, we are we, um, we are at mnfreedomfund.org as well as mnfreedomfundaction.org. But also know that there are bail funds across the country and in your community. So wherever your listeners are, there are organizations to be supporting.
0: Maria Sahara rosco is co-executive director of Minnesota Freedom Fund. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so sorry about the technical glitches. Please, please no, come join you. us again. Your work is thank you
4: so much, John.
0: Stop it. Your work is so patriotic to me. Thank you. We'll be right oh. back. This is progress. This is Serious XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Our number is 866 997 4748. 866 997. Grit, let's go to the phones. Todd in Houston, thank you so much for your patience on hold. Welcome.
5: Uh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to add to what your guest was saying, and hopefully she didn't say it while I was uh, dialing in, but um, I've had my own experience with the uh, the criminal justice system in the past few years. and. One of the things they like to do is, well, not only keep you in jail waiting for a trial, which fortunately I was able to avoid, but to keep putting off that trial. That's you know, it. The, the Bill of Rights says you're supposed to have a speedy trial, and they like to say, oh, you'll, you'll come to court in three months. But then a few days before that, oh, no, it's three months again. Yeah. And so it can take at least a year. My case took just over a year to get dismissed, and sometimes they'll just keep on doing it. And that's how they soften you up and say, hey, do you want to speed this thing along? Well, plead guilty. Plead to guilty.
0: That's it. And that's another reason why it's an evil racket. And it's another reason why we don't have equal justice. Rich people ha- rich people don't feel this pinch. You be- Go ahead. If you have money, you pay the bail. If you don't, you suffer. The system is rigged. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're okay, Todd. I'm glad you were able to... Is everything okay now with your uh, difficulty?
5: Oh, yeah. Yes. It was, uh, it was dismissed a year ago. I, I fortunately had a a lawyer who was able to push to get it in there. And uh, we didn't have to go to trial. He uh, basically showed the prosecutor the problem with his case, and he agreed, and that was the end of it.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Thank you so much for the story. I'm glad but, you're uh, okay. But, yeah, yeah, it's... Even,
5: but uh, yeah, even, I hate to say this, but even Democratic uh, prosecutors will do that because oh, we yeah. have a Democratic DA here in, in Houston. Uh, but that's the way. And they're
0: terrified of being called soft on crime. So right? So they'll do any any number of horrible things like this and be part of the system and perpetuate it. Yep. Yep. Thank you so much for sharing the story, Todd. I do appreciate it. Hey, Sean in California, welcome.
3: Hey, Brother John. First of all, you know, happy Valentine's Day to everybody. (laughs) And I wish everyone in our country, across the world, all the listeners a very happy ending at the end of the night, you know? Okay. So, well, you know, I mean, yeah. happy endings are good. Happy, happy good.
0: Valentine's day to you. Happy, and happy token love day to some of you. Happy Christmas to the greeting card, floral and lingerie industries. Um, you know, I, 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 sh- I forgot to buy a gift to prove my devotion, but, uh, but happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Happy, happy Valentine's day.
3: Well, 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 tonight we're doing movie night and, uh, it, you know, it's Black Panther, oh, you know, very once nice. again.
0: The the, the, yeah. the original or the sequel?
3: Well, the original now, I've seen it. My better half has seen it. But my daughter, my 14-year-old, hasn't seen Black Panther oh. yet. And so so we're going to do that one. And That's then tomorrow night, thing. we're doing the sequel. So, you know, we're keeping it real or trying to anyway. Nice. And, uh, have, you, have
0: you seen the sequel yet? Have you seen uh, Wakanda Forever? I have. I have not, oh, but I, I can't wait. I it is a wait. very, very special movie. It is probably best. It's not a Valentine's Day movie, but um, I, as, as, as wonderful as the first movie is, uh, the second one is you, you will not believe how much you can feel from a comic book movie. It is a film about death and loss and grieving, and it's so powerful, and Angela Bassett's going to win an Oscar for it, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it.
3: Oh, I'll let you know. You know, I'll call again. (laughs) So, but I was calling about Nikki Haley because you've covered it so perfectly. Um, And the thing about Nikki Haley, right? Please. um, That just drives me absolutely well, it doesn't really drive me nuts, but, you know, it really makes me sick, really, is what it does. She's a phony. She's the kind of politician like a Ted Cruz, like a Marco Rubio, like a a DeSantis. All of these people have the same qualities, which they don't stand for anything. They don't believe in anything. They just want power, and they'll stick with anyone who will help them get that power. And Nikki Haley, uh, you know, stuck with Donald bin Laden, uh, uh, you know, a racist. Um, a misogynist, a a fool um, for all this time. And now she wants us to forget that, right? Like, I'll use a term that, you know, I, I can use it. Etch-a-Sketch. That's what she wants to do.
0: Yeah, it's even worse and than that. She she really, she's trying to have it both ways, which <laughs> homophobes, yeah. homophobes always like having it both ways, but she wants to be able to say, I resisted Donald Trump and stood up against him, and I was loyal to Donald Trump and worked for him in his administration. And both things are true, yeah. because she believes in nothing.
3: Exactly. And so this is the kind of politician um, or person, for that matter in my life, that I keep out of my circle, if you will. I mean, because I, I don't mind if people disagree with me. I don't mind if people have a very, uh, you know, intelligent, cogent way to, you know, disagree with me, even if I'll still disagree with them. It's, it's another thing to just be a phony. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where we are in this world, you know, because, uh, you know, you got George Santos, which they're going to defer to him. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But he's not the worst. The worst are the ones that have higher ranking in the Republican Party. Yeah. The Ted Cruz the you know, we've we've gone through the list. I'm just saying that this is the kind of thing that I hope. The voters pay close attention to because they have Fox boobs. They have a lot of the media. They have a lot of the
0: social media. I mean, I don't I think there's a chance that Ron DeSantis could ask Nikki Haley to be his running mate. That's that's possible. But yeah. and, And by the way, Donald Trump, like Nikki Haley, believes nothing. He praised her when she left his administration. Today, he trashed her completely. Um, but if he thought he could win by having her as a running mate, he would ask. I, I'm afraid our friend Dr. Jason Nichols has convinced me that if Donald Trump gets the nomination, it's it's going to be Tim Scott.
3: Oh my goodness! You know what? I think you're right with that one. And and that, by the way, it makes me even sicker because Tim Scott, in in the long term of legacy. You made the wrong choice. I will guarantee you, no matter what, the American people, he will have made the wrong choice supporting white supremacists and even worse than that, oh, yeah. people that want autocracy and authoritarians and all of that. And, uh, you know, just a bad decision. But I got the, I know his family history. By the way, if anyone doesn't know his family history, look it up, because, yes, it's it's, it's a history. So he learned from others, and it's sad because of the struggles that people that aren't white, and by the way, you hit this all the time. What's that? White folks that are economically downtrodden and hurt by the system of capitalism. You know, they are the ones, they're being preyed upon by those in power to try to pit black people against white people because... That is the sad thing is that it isn't black people causing you poor white people to be poor. No, nope. it's the system. So make sure you understand that your brothers and sisters that happen to be black or brown uh, or Asian, you know, they're not the ones hurting your pocketbook. It's a very good it's point. It's the system. So. Yeah.
0: I mean, again, rich people pay Fox people to make working people blame poor people. And it wasn't those guys standing outside Home Depot looking for day labor gigs who outsourced your job to China. It was people like Donald Trump who outsourced all of his merchandising to Mexico or China. It's a racket. And all we can do is just remind people of the facts and follow the money.
3: Absolutely, brother. I always appreciate getting a chance to be on your show, a great show. And uh, I love you.
0: Well, thank you. Love you back. I really appreciate it. Happy Valentine's Day to you and your wife. Um, Congratulations to you for marrying up. Uh, We got to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, Dr. Nolan Higdon returns to talk about uh, teaching kids media literacy, which could be a good way to teach adults media literacy. What is media literacy? Well, it's the opposite of being a passive, drooling TV zombie. We'll go deep So we mentioned this hypothetical at the top of the show, but imagine if your kids spent 11 hours a day boating and uh, but you made sure to teach them nothing about how boats operate or uh, boating safety or even how to swim if your boat capsizes. That, that'd be dangerous, right? Well, we already know that young people between the ages of eight and 18 can spend at times an average of 11 hours a day engaged with some form of what we call media and oftentimes they're media multitasking. And yet, we teach them very little about how to understand and analyze what they're seeing, what they're hearing. Why? Because most of us were taught very little about how how to understand and analyze what we saw and heard. Passive media consumption is bad for humans of all ages. And unlike a lot of other countries, the USA does not have any kind of media literacy training in school curriculum. As a result, young people who grow into middle-aged and old people, are immersed in a media ecosystem they don't understand, which makes it very easy to be manipulated by that media ecosystem. So I'm so pleased to welcome back Dr. Nolan Higdon. He's an author and university lecturer of history and media studies. Uh, his areas of concentration include podcasting, digital culture, news media history, and critical media. Literacy. He's a founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference for the Americas, and he's also the co-author, along with Allison Butler, Andy Lee Roth, and our friend Mickey Huff, of a new book that brings together top media scholars and critics to give young people a practical media literacy toolkit, and honestly, to give it to their parents as well. The book is The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. What a pleasure to welcome Nolan Higdon back to SiriusXM.
6: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you so much. I love that you wrote this. I think it's so amazing. I think it's great you made it for young people because it gives us an excuse to talk about how much grown-ups need it. Um, You know, like many, I grew up uh, watching Manufacturing Consent the Noam Chomsky movie, um, because essentially the media, 90 percent of it's controlled by what, five, six corporations. And I tried making my child watch the Noam Chomsky documentary. It really didn't work. So I'm really, really glad that you've made this book. Can you explain, uh, just to begin with, how do you define critical media literacy and why is it so rare for Americans to be aware of it?
6: Yeah, we, you know, we define critical media literacy as teaching students how to not only analyze media, but also use media. And as part of that analysis, to, to look at the power in media, who has the power to produce media, who gets to fund media, what messages are sent, what what messages are censored, and, and what can they do with media uh, to transform their world. Um, to your question about the lack of media literacy, we've kind of had two problems for, for decades now. Uh, one is that there's a lot of folks in education who think that you teach about media, you're going to kind of dumb down education. Like we shouldn't be watching films and playing on social media. We should be reading the classics. Um, but another problem, and one I think is uh, a little more influential is we have a real decentralized school system. So we don't have like an education czar who can mandate media literacy in every grade in every place. You have to go to every local school board, convince the folks on that board this is important, Hopefully find the resources to implement it, find the teachers to teach it and then get it into schools. And that's been a longstanding problem in the U.S.
0: Now, when we talk about media, we're talking not just electronic, you mean print as well,
6: right? Of course. Yeah, that's, um, you know, one of the things we, we talked to with a lot of educators, um, the educators obviously don't want more work. So we say a lot of these assignments um, you can do in place of existing assignments. So the same way a student would analyze, say, like a chapter from a book, you could you could learn critical thinking analysis of, say, like a film or a streaming television show.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, you talk about how media citizenship is vital for true democratic participation. And of course, it's opposite. Passive media consumption is a danger to democracy. I'd like to unpack that a bit and talk about why it's so essential for young people and their parents to develop skills to be able to view the media more critically.
6: Yeah, and in a democracy, um, what we do in our democracy, how we participate, or if we don't participate, um, is often influenced by the messages we receive in media. Um, this could be news media, this could be film, could be music, um, but it's highly influential in, in how we see our world and what we think needs to be done within it. And so, analyzing who gets to make these messages and what these messages are can help reveal, you know, why people see the world they the way they do. Oftentimes, the people we disagree with are not. You know horrible people right um, unfortunately they've received false information that's made them believe or act in horrendous ways and so it's being able to to channel how to understand to get underneath those those media narratives and reach folks um, you know before it's too late
0: so um, I'm curious what was the genesis of come of bringing about the media and me I, I I love that it exists I can't believe it exists How did this idea develop
6: um you know We were approached with the idea basically we were um, you know there's about 10 or 11 11 of us who worked on the book and a lot of us are media scholars so you know we can we can write for a scholarly audience uh which you know has its value but a lot of that stuff doesn't reach the 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 public that's hungry for it and so we wanted to write a book that was more accessible to the public in general and and young people in particular and so we did that was cool is we had a diverse group of participants um diverse in every sense of the word um, but especially diverse in terms of age. So we had some of the youngins, um, you know, telling us, reading through the book and saying, yeah, this this doesn't really work, or, you know, that's really an old person way of looking at that. And so there was a lot of back and forth negotiation about what this book would look like. And I think in the end, it made it a lot more accessible to a broader audience.
0: Well, let's let's talk about the connection, because the book covers mm-hmm. this, between media literacy and a healthy democracy that actually works. I mean, we're talking about an informed populace when... The places we go for information are really just generally looking for us to buy diapers.
6: Yeah, um, that's, you know, that's an important reason why to look at the, the power dynamics of media. Um, all media have some message. They have some purpose. And, and often in our capitalist society, they're trying to sell you something. Right? Um, they're trying to make a profit. They're not necessarily trying to inform you or empower you or, or any of those things. So being cognizant of that uh, enables us to uh, negotiate our relationship with media.
0: Absolutely. Um, so let me go through uh, some of the areas where the book tackles these topics, because honestly, it's. You've kind of like rocked my world here. I want to see college curriculum in- incorporate all of this I mean, how do you begin to teach critical thinking skills for decoding the kind of bias including bias? We might agree with that is being fed to us all day long through corporate media
6: Yeah, I think you know nuts and bolts level Um starting by just, just what you said there, that there are these uh, biases embedded in, in everything we see. And just saying like, oh, I don't read this or watch that because it's biased. That, that's intellectually lazy. Um, it's it's more interesting to, to figure out what is the bias and how does it affect the message? What are the implications of the bias? So teaching students to, to know what the different biases are, how to spot them, um, teach them what fallacies are. So fallacious thinking, you know, this can be sometimes arguments that sound really good on the surface, but when you interrogate them, um, they're really illogical. Where maybe we attack the person versus the argument, um, and maybe because we don't like the person, we say like, okay, the argument must be false. But but that's illogical. Um, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, it's a critical thinker really interrogates the argument being made, regardless of the person making it.
0: See, you're you're really bolstering my theory that this is a book as much for adults as for young people. But what about identifying propaganda?
6: <laughs> yeah, I do. It's very helpful in identifying um, propaganda. Media is a way of often, especially entertainment media, making horrendous propaganda more digestible. But um, yeah. like entertainment, sounds around it, or you put beautiful people in front of it, and we we digest it without thinking about it. Um, so one of the you know basic lessons, and this this fits into your idea about um, all age groups, is simply just slowing down just slow down and think about the messages you're receiving. Yes, that word think. Think about the messages you're receiving. Don't just sort of mindlessly consume them and act upon them. Um, spend some time to, to interrogate it. Um, who, who's funding this? What's, what's their motive? Um, you know, what's the logic behind it? Those are important questions for decoding propaganda.
0: And you also focus on teaching young consumers of media how to distinguish actual real arguments from just manipulation and propaganda.
6: Yeah. um, Media tools, you know, over the last 100 years, for sure, but certainly in the last 10 to 15 years um, have made it a lot easier to create slick uh, propaganda campaigns and arguments that convince audiences. Um, So we if we want to have a democracy and I hope we all do. Um, we really need to have a citizenry that's able to slow down and interrogate these messages. I, I think it's a fool's errand to think we'll ever get rid of propaganda or fake news or any sure. of that stuff. I think it'd be a better fight to try and train the population to be able to spot these things.
0: Well, uh, but also we're in this you know golden age of having... Corporate media, which will bring on a Democrat and a Republican, not necessarily a liberal and a conservative, but a Democrat and a Republican. And then you'll have a well paid host sitting in between them and they'll yell sound bites at each other and talking points at each other. And it, we're told that this is a debate. I mean, it seems like this is what I grew up with, and I know you did it as well. It's hardly a wonder that young people have such media illiteracy when it's the very construct we've all been raised in.
6: Yeah, and that's a really, really important point. And a point I make, particularly um, with students is, look, it, it wasn't always this way. You know, people used to have ideological debates that were respectful, constructive. And, and as an audience member, you could learn a lot, even if you disagreed with one or both the participants. Um, but yeah, 24-hour cable news has really reduced what we call debate just to shouting matches. And social media has, you know, digitized the opportunity for everybody to do that around the globe in real time. Um, so reminding folks, you know, what is debate? What is the purpose of debate and argumentation? You know, it's about changing minds and, and um, not only uh, interrogating someone else's argument, but being able to defend your own um, is very important. Yeah. Um, so you can stand on strong footing.
0: What are some of the key questions that uh, the book teaches young people to ask when they're consuming any kind of media?
6: I think some of the key questions are, are who created this um, text, how was it created, what, what's the purpose of it, what, what's the message it's sending, um, who is represented and how are they represented, who is not represented, why is that, um, who gets to make these decisions. Um, asking those those critical questions can start to reveal a lot about our, our media system, um, you know, what interests it serves and, and what ideology it's trying to normalize.
0: Do you talk about determining what is actual journalism as opposed to what are TV broadcasters who might be very good at their jobs but are not actually journalists?
6: Yes, I uh, say so this is where we kind of have a quality problem. Um, we have access to, to more information than any humans have on in human history or in world history. But um We we have a real difficulty struggling what is actually journalism. So I I try and teach them about the folks in media who are not journalists. So your pundits and commentators, op ed writers, uh, you know, some of these like reporters and say, like, if you want journalism, you have to go to the journalists. So identify uh, who the journalists are. What about
0: exploring who the actual publishers are or or network heads of the content we're consuming?
6: yes critical approach always looks at at who's behind the production who owns these companies um so you want to interrogate uh, the money that's associated with with these media messages sometimes it's really easy if you watch cable news which most young people don't but if you do um they have commercials um so you can see <laughs> who some of those funders are right yeah. there um, during the, the break but other times you have to do a lot more digging um, you know and see the different, Um, economic arrangements that folks have. So like a Jeff Bezos at the Washington Times, for example, or Washington Post, excuse Mm me, Um, or, you know, Rupert Murdoch and and things like that. You have to find their other economic connections and ideological connections.
0: Yeah. I mean, it reminded me of when I was a a young person and the first Persian Gulf War was happening to drive Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And my dad, the history teacher, took me aside and was explaining to me uh, as the news was getting their ratings clicks over the upcoming war, my dad made took the time to explain to me which corporate news entities were owned by parent corporations that manufactured weapons being used in that war. And from there, it was pretty easy to understand why all the guests were retired generals talking about how we're going to take them out and not say a Howard Zinn or a Gore Vidal or a peace activist talking about nonviolent alternatives.
6: Yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. I mean, yeah, at that time, uh, general electric's ownership of NBC um, dictated a lot of the, the war, um, rhetoric and what what your father did there. I mean, that is a critical media literacy lesson. Um, you know, that, that message of, of pro-war, where does it come from? Well, go back and follow the money, look at the guests, look at not only who is there, but who's not there. Like you said, Gore Vidal and other peace activists mm-hmm. um, can help us understand how these messages are formed and normalized.
0: We're at a time now when, obviously, to our great surprise, uh, war and bombing the hell out of third world nations is not in vogue. So in lieu of that, what are some of the more... I guess disconcerning, disinformation, headline grabbing trends that you warn young readers about. It's very easy to have this kind of academic conversation when we're talking about war propaganda, especially when we haven't legally declared war since 1941. But that seems to be on the wane, God willing. So, what kind of dynamics do you caution young people to be wary of?
6: Yeah, I would point out that like oftentimes, you know, we we are able to determine how falsehoods led us to war you know certainly 10 or 20 years later like the other night i was watching um jeopardy which which folks my age do and um one of the you know clues was was basically saying that the united states lied about these wmds and i thought it's so weird that 20 years later that's just like passively on jeopardy where i was called like a you know traitor and unpatriotic 20 years earlier for for saying that that very same thing so I remind students of those kind of examples and say, like, when when there's this you know consensus and this emotional push, and you see a large portion of like the population all of a sudden care a lot about something they almost seemingly did not talk about at all only weeks earlier, that should raise a red flag. Yeah. That 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 sort of hysteria at least raises questions. You know, I'm not saying you need to disagree with it, but at least stop and raise questions. Why is this happening now? Um, it's a good way to to think about it. Can I ask about
0: the role that advertising plays in today's media and how it shapes the perceptions of the young people and adults who are consuming it?
6: Yeah, advertising still um hugely influential. Um early, you know, media lessons focus on advertising and I think we've we've gone away somewhat from that, but it's still hugely hugely um influential. It's it's advertisers that tell us what's cool, what's hip, what's right, what's wrong, um, you know, what's in. I mean, all, all those things come from advertisements. And um, it's not just like commercials like it was when I was younger. Um, and it's not just billboards on the freeway, which it still is both those things, but social media is packed with advertisers and influencers who are who are advertising to to people 24 hours a day. Um so reminding yourself when you're using social media, you're being advertised at. Um is something a critical perspective would, would remind users of.
0: Constantly. Constantly. I'm I'm curious, in the development of the book, what kind of feedback did you get from young people that surprised you?
6: Um some some of the examples uh, some of the examples we used, you know, I was talking about um things with like War on Terror, 9-11, even like the Obama years. And, you know, some of that stuff is seen as old to these to these young folks, right? That's before they were born or before they were sort of cognizant of their world. Um, so they talked about, you know, keeping those things in the book, but bringing more like contemporary, um, examples and things like that. So I, we tried really hard in the text to stay within like the 2021, 2022, um, era with examples in addition to the historical examples.
0: And of course you do talk about recognizing the importance of what's missing in a given report on the news.
6: Yeah. Um, sometimes that can be, um, some of the most revealing. I mean, earlier you talked about, um, a lot of the pro-war military officials in media, um, it's become quite clear by this point that we know that the Pentagon, you know, consistently funds people to be in news media. Yeah. Um, we know Democrats, Republicans typically are in news media. Um, we know people of a certain credentialed class are usually in news media, but you really don't get a lot of voices outside of that. Um, And I think that's revealing about a lot of the news stories we we hear. Um, And even if you agree with all those people, that's totally fine. But you should be curious as to why there's such a narrow scope of commentary on such critical issues from a supposedly free country with a free press.
0: Absolutely. I'm curious, does the book at all talk about detecting racism or prejudice or or sexism, ableism, what, what have you? I mean, it's one thing for us to watch Fox News and count how many times Megyn Kelly says the word thug or illegals, but obviously it takes a while to even get to that level of breaking down what we're taking in.
6: Yeah, a a critical approach certainly looks at um, power dynamics. And all throughout the book, we talk about this, Um, you know, how race, gender, sexuality, ability, age, um, other critical identity factors How they're negotiated in media and how propaganda about identity groups is communicated through media. Um, A critical media literacy person recognizes those things, but also looks for ways to use media alternatively to combat those notions. So how can we combat white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity um, through our media use are also questions that the critical media literacy folks wrestle with.
0: I totally love this book. I love that you wrote it. And I'm curious, what are your hopes for the media and me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people. Is this something that you'd like to see given as gifts or something incorporated into school curriculum?
6: You know, really, really both. Um, You know, my, my life's work is to, to try and get critical media literacy across the curriculum in schools. Um, It's to get, you know, parents have these conversations with their young people and, and to move the conversation beyond just telling young people, oh, don't use social media. Don't watch this. Don't listen to that. Right. You know, kid, kids are smart. They're, they're going to be okay. Um, a book like this and these types of skills are, are just what we need to equip them with and they'll be all right.
0: Can I ask Dr. Higdon, who's doing it right? I mean, this is your job and we've discussed in the past fake news and censored stories and disinformation when you've joined us prior, but who, who right now in the corporate media landscape can you look to as a model? And say, oh, I wish more would emulate this.
6: I don't know. You know, I don't really have much hope for the the corporate um, media landscape too much. Um, I think there are individuals um, operating within in the landscape. I'm, I'm really excited what I'm seeing right now in a lot of the um, alternative or, or digital media space. Like I'm a big proponent of podcasting um, so long as it stays independent um, I think uh, a lot of these like streaming shows online are great. I think there's some questions we raise about whether or not they're going to have the right gatekeepers to do the right editing and things like that. But um, I'm just really excited about the amount of really good journalists who get profiled in those types of programs, um, get those interviews. And so then audiences can connect with them. Um, I'm also really inspired by a lot of the uh, like populist media that tries to bring together like populists from the left and the right to have like constructive dialogue. Because then it's like something interesting. I just, I learned from, you know, hearing these different perspectives on the same story.
0: I mean, it, it does feel like it's getting worse, Doctor. When I look at the media's continuing attempts to normalize Donald Trump and including progressive media or what claims to be progressive media because he's ratings crack. I mean, we, we have such an object lesson that the one great bias in media is ratings, eyeballs, clicks. I mean, it doesn't even matter whether it's left or right for some of these sources. And that's why it it seems terrifying that the media is so obsessed with getting the ratings to satisfy the shareholders that that supersedes any practical concerns for the fate of democracy itself.
6: Yeah, that um, that is certainly uh, a problem. Les Moonves of CBS said in 2015, 2016 that, uh, you know, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's damn good for CBS. Um, So essentially saying that um, he was happy with the profits and a lot of folks cashed in like Rachel Maddow and and others got big contracts from from being deriding Trump. But I I will say those those audiences for corporate media have been decimated, especially in cable news. Yeah. Um, And a lot of those audiences are gravitating online. And as long as we can protect some spaces in the digital space for some of these conversations, there's something there for those folks. And so I'm a little optimistic about where things are going. Um, it's a little uncomfortable to see these like journalistic juggernauts kind of waning. But on the other side, I see some great things on the horizon. So I'm hoping um, America can pull the nose up on this thing.
0: I mean, that sounds very optimistic. Do you think that we will have an independent democratization of media? I'm with you on thinking that the big dinosaurs are chugging along on a model that's not really effective anymore.
6: Yeah. The, I mean, the data's there that folks are leaving um, that media for sure. Like this old corporate model in droves, but it's, it. the question is where do they go? Right. So where do right. they end up? If they end up at Breitbart, we, we have some serious problems. Um, so we need to, <laughs> we need to make sure they end up in a more uh, constructive space. And I think we're, we're starting to to see a lot of that with some of these um, sort of internet personalities that are making it. So I remain optimistic about what I'm seeing in these trends.
0: Before I let you go, Dr. Higdon, the new book talks about how free speech and media literacy rely on each other. I love that. Can you unpack that for us a bit? How, yeah, how, they, um, how free speech and media literacy actually help each other?
6: Yeah. Um, you know, we want to have a free and open um, society. Uh, and part of that, it means being able to interrogate messages um, and receive messages from wherever they may come. I.e., we need free speech. So we need to be able to wrestle with these ideas and be able to defeat them through messaging. And so I think there's always been this this connection. And and I think I looked at the First Amendment um, with freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And, and there's a reason why those two are, are tied together. They're they're nece- they're necessary for a democracy. Absolutely. And so I think when you, we when you talk about media literacy, you have to talk about free speech. Um, we can't just be interrogating messages that we're allowed to see. We need to think about the whole totality of the messages that are out there.
0: The book is terrific. Kirkus Reviews said the moment post truth entered the dictionary the need for a book like this became clear. Dr. Nolan Higdon is one of the co authors of The Media and Me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people. Thank you so much for writing this. I love that you did it, and thank you for joining us again.
6: Thank you so much, Sean. Really appreciate it. Always a
0: pleasure. Thank you, sir. Have a great evening.